Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we're going to be discussing throughout the various episodes. And if you're a regular listener, please do help spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and others in your networks. You can, of course, also find links to all the materials discussed in all of the episodes, including the links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by all of our guests on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. Our guest today is David Sloss, a professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law in California. David will, of course, be known to many listeners as an expert in a number of areas of international law, and perhaps most particularly in foreign relations law and the interface of international and constitutional law and the implementation of international law in domestic courts. In this episode, we focus on his new book, published, I think, the very week we're finalizing this episode, called Tyrants on Twitter, Protecting Democracies from Chinese and Russian Information Warfare. Listeners may immediately wonder how exactly this relates to the laws of war, and this is indeed a bit of a departure from our usual focus. But David makes the case that Russia and China in particular, but autocracies more generally, are using social media as an alternative means of warfare in a geopolitical and strategic struggle with the democracies of the world. And he argues in the book that democracies rather urgently need to respond to the threat of what he calls information warfare. As you will hear, the book analyzes the nature of the threat with a fairly deep dive into the details of recent operations and their consequences, and proposes a transnational response in the form of an international agreement among like-minded democracies to implement domestic law to defend against this information warfare. David lays out some of the details of that proposal in our discussion. But there are some analogies here, of course, to the threat posed by cyber operations, but David explains why that analogy is not that helpful in terms of thinking about the law and policy response to this particular threat. In our conversation, we dig into the many objections that his proposal is likely to provoke, including and perhaps most particularly, the question of why we wouldn't work towards a more universal solution to the problem of disinformation and unlawful intervention, rather than develop regional or ideological-based solutions. Also, whether there aren't aspects of hypocrisy and double standards inherent in the West complaining about things like interference in elections, and some of the more technical problems of trying to implement the details of his scheme. I will say that there are large segments of the book, particularly those focused on the likely constitutional objections to his proposal, that we don't get to discuss in any detail at all. And there is a wealth of detail on the nature of the disinformation operations of Russia and China that we cannot do justice to in our conversation. So I encourage everyone to spend some time with the book itself. But with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, David Sloss, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for inviting me. Well, as you know, before I uh, dive into the substance, I've been asking my guests to tell us a little something about themselves that perhaps your colleagues don't know, something a little idiosyncratic. Yeah. So what I wanted to share is that I am actually a practicing Buddhist. I have been for 40 years now. So I have a regular meditation practice that I do every day. And that actually was incredibly helpful to me in getting through the pandemic. So. That is interesting. And you're not the first who I've heard say that meditation really helped them get through the pandemic. So it's food for thought there. 
Well, listen, before we dive into the weeds of, of your book, I thought it would be best if I just uh, give you the opportunity to tell our listeners the main argument. I mean, this is obviously a little bit different from what we've typically been talking about on the podcast, in that we're not in the in the core of USAD Bellum or IHL. So give us the thumbnail sketch of the argument, and then we'll start to pull apart some of the, the premises and get into some debate. All right. So I, I sort of begin with the premise that for the foreseeable future, uh, the United States is going to be engaged in an ongoing geopolitical competition with primarily China, but also Russia. And I see this in somewhat ideological terms, that there's a, a global struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. Now, I don't think the authoritarians want to turn the entire world into autocracies. And I don't think actually the United States should be trying to turn the entire world into democracies. You know, I think we just got to accept that we're going to be living for a long time in a world in which states are divided between democracies and autocracies. But it's in our interest to sort of move the needle further in the democratic direction to the extent that we can. And as this geopolitical competition progresses, we can see competition in both military and economic realms. But I think one huge difference between the current era and the Cold War is that information competition is becoming increasingly important, competition in the sort of information domain. And so that's really what I'm looking at in the book is how is that competition in the information domain playing out and how does that affect the broader geopolitical context? And one of my central plans is that if we look at what's going on now, in effect, the United States is subsidizing Chinese and Russian information warfare by granting Chinese and Russian state agents essentially free and unrestricted access to U.S. social media platforms. And that these social media platforms have actually become very important tools in this ongoing information competition. And if we look at it in strategic terms, that's just a fundamental mistake to grant them uh, unrestricted access to social media platforms, because as I said, we're effectively subsidizing Chinese and Russian information warfare. So my main policy proposal here is that we should actually ban Chinese and Russian state agents from major social media platforms. And interestingly, that's starting, starting to happen now. The companies are doing it with respect to Russia, not China. But we've seen developments just in the last couple of weeks in the Ukraine war where major platforms have decided that it's actually not a good idea to be giving Russian state agents this platform to sort of spread their propaganda to the world. But what I'm proposing is a really more coordinated, organized approach among Western democracies where we don't leave it up to private companies to make these decisions, but we have coordinated action by liberal democracies that is designed to essentially protect democracies from information warfare. So that's the basic pitch and push. Okay, I guess two of the premises that underlie this is first, you go through in, in the early chapter how democracies are in decline. You examine the democratic recession and, and talk about democratic decay and argue that information warfare and disinformation is a component or one of the causes of this. And so maybe we can unpack that a little bit. And as well, you know, as one part of it is that the Chinese and Russian foreign influence operations 
specifically pose a threat to democracies in this way and are part of the story of democratic decline. So perhaps we can just talk a little bit about the empirical foundation for those claims. So let me present just a little bit of uh, data here on what I call uh, democratic decay or democratic decline. So if you look at the state of the world in 1990, when, you know, we sort of move into the post-Cold War era, and I'm just looking at a chart I've got here, roughly 50% of the states in the world were authoritarian states, and only about uh, 20% to 25%, uh, sorry, 25% of states were uh, democracies, right? But what happened for the first sort of 15 years of the post-Cold War era, and going from basically 1990 to 2006, was the percentage of uh, authoritarian states in the world declined from about 50% to uh, just under 25%, while the percentage of democratic states in the world increased from like 25% to 35%. So these were very favorable trends if you happen to be a fan of democracy, right? Uh, right? But then starting in around 2010, thereabouts, we see a reversal of these trends. So what's been happening for the last decade or a little more is the percentage of um, autocracies in the world has been going up, the percentage of democracies in the world has been going down. And I think these are troubling trends and we need to look at how we can reverse those trends. And so I, I make the claim that information warfare, which I basically defined as the use of social media to conduct foreign influence operations. Information warfare is one of several factors contributing to these trends. It's, I think, an almost impossible empirical task to sort of tease out what is the relative contribution of different factors, right? But I have a lot of sort of anecdotal information in the book suggesting as to how Chinese and Russian information warfare is contributing both to the decline of democracy and to the rise of autocracy. And here I think China and Russia are somewhat different because Russia really is focused more on undermining democracy and China is focused more on sort of nurturing the growth of uh, authoritarian states, right? So there's different in that respect. But I think the, their actions are one of several factors that's contributing to these trends. And so the policy prescription is designed to sort of attack that as a cause to uh, help try and reverse these trends. Right. So to expand a little bit on what you've just said, you have a number of chapters that deal with it quite uh, a level of detail as to how Russian information warfare or disinformation operations operated in the 2016 election. And you have some empirical research of others that you use to support the claim that the Russian information warfare in the context of the 2016 election was significant and potentially was material to the outcome. And so perhaps you can just tell us a little bit more about that research that, that supports your claim that really that information warfare is having a significant impact on not just democratic decay, but in interfering in election outcomes in, in ways that are helping to undermine democracy generally. So I have two chapters in the book that focus specifically on Russia. And one of, one of those chapters focuses on Russian interference in the 2016 election in the United States. And here I rely a lot on a fantastic book by a woman named Kathleen Hall Jameson. The book is called Cyber War. 
But she really did a deep dive into this. And she's a sort of a media and communication scholar. So she's looking at how Russian intervention is affecting the sort of media environment in the United States surrounding the 2016 election. And does a deep dive and basically, you know, says first, look, it's impossible to sort of prove that uh, Russian interference was this sort of tipping factor that sort of tipped the scales in favor of Donald Trump. But there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that it could have been a tipping factor that tipped the scales in favor of Donald Trump. And looking particularly at the sort of three key swing states in that election, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and what was going on with the media environment and how Russian intervention sort of influence the overall media environment and how that then translates into, uh, we can see relations between that and public opinion polling data, right? right? So you can't say for sure that like, but for Russian intervention, Flinton would have won, right? We don't know that, but it's possible that but for Russian intervention, Flinton would have won. And that actually, the distinction between a Clinton victory and a Trump victory, I think a lot of people would agree has to huge significance for sort of the fate of democracy in the United States. And if nothing else, it's sort of the whole experience around the 2016 election, I think, has contributed to a sort of a loss of faith in democracy in the United States, which itself is a significant concern. And then there's another chapter looking at Europe, and I use a couple of case studies, one from France, one from Sweden, one from the United Kingdom, that I don't know that we need to go into sort of detail on those. But the big picture is that we've got evidence of Russian interference in elections in about 20 different countries, members of either the European Union or NATO or both. And Again, I don't think you can sort of show that Russia uh, specifically affected electoral outcomes in, in any of these. But what we do know is that there are strong linkages between Russia and the far right in Europe. That's partly in the form of funding and partly in the form of just sort of ideological alliance. And there are a bunch of countries in Europe where the far right has sort of gained in sort of percentage of the vote in elections. And that generally is bad for democracy because the far-right in Europe tend to be skeptics of the European Union, they tend to be skeptics of NATO, and this feeds right into Putin's agenda, which is to weaken NATO and weaken the European Union. And so I think there has been some significant influence there, although measuring that influence is, is really tough. All right. So in your first chapter, you pose some questions or objections to your own argument, and which, you know, I think is, is very fair of you. So let's explore some of those objections. And in particular, the one objection that you raised for yourself and addressed, but left me still wanting more and I wanted to explore was why we define information warfare so narrowly, right? So as you just indicated a few moments ago, you said information warfare related to the use of social media and you limit yourself to social media. And as we'll come to the policy proposal, the, the entire so normative argument that you're making in the book focuses on the regulation of social media. But if we look at Russian tactics in this space in interfering with uh, democratic elections, it's not limited to social media, right? They're funding PACs, they're hacking, they're even trying to hack into voting machines. There's a whole host of other ways in which they're engaging in active measures. 
And so what's your justification for defining information warfare in this narrow, narrow way? Well, let me, let's talk about two other things you mentioned, right? One is hacking. Hacking is a serious problem. It's not one that lends itself well to legal solutions or particularly transnational legal solutions, right? It's mostly a technical problem that requires technical solutions. And so I think this is an important issue that we should be addressing, but I don't see much role for international law here. I think this is primarily a sort of something for the engineers to work on. And, and, you know, I mean, companies and big organizations need to figure out good procedures for dealing with this, right? But I'm looking for sort of transnational regulatory solutions here, and I don't think hacking lends itself to that. In terms of funding, and particularly funding related to elections. Actually, most liberal democracies already have some laws governing this. Those laws vary a lot state by state, but I don't see much of a need for international cooperation to deal with this. I think this is something that mostly can be handled on the the national level, right? So each nation basically figuring out for itself what kinds of foreign funding is permissible for elections, what kinds of foreign funding is not permissible for elections or for political parties general, right? And like I said, most uh, democracies already have laws in place to deal with that. Social media on the other hand is an area where I think national regulatory solutions are not, not a good approach. I think we need transnational regulatory solutions because social media is a transnational phenomenon, right? Whatever. If the U.S. does one thing and the European Union does something different, we could be working at sort of cross-purposes to each other. And I think we really want to be aligning ourselves in this space with other liberal democracies. And so I focus on social media in part because I'm interested in looking at sort of transnational regulatory solutions. And I think we need transnational regulatory solutions in this area to sort of uh, prevent social media from being used to undermine democratic governance. Okay. And another objection you pose for yourself and address it in the first chapter is this idea of defining it as information warfare, that is importing a war paradigm or a military paradigm. And you recognize and acknowledge that there's a risk of securitization that to, to import sort of national security language into the problem and in how one thinks about and addresses the problem runs the risk of securitization as as political scientists have referred to it of therefore uh, making it a military problem and so how do you address that so i guess i would start with the famous clausewitz uh, quote war is politics by other means right and i think what we're seeing both china and russia do it's sort of turning Klavosowitz on its head, and their approach is to look at it as information warfare is warfare by other means. So it's certainly not warfare in the traditional military sense. It's not warfare the way we think about warfare in terms of the laws of armed conflict, right? But it is an important tool, and this goes back to what I was saying before, it's an important tool in the current sort of geopolitical competition between democracies and autocracies. And I think both China and Russia are actually being very strategic. And there's lots of evidence to support this notion that they're being very strategic and thinking about how they use, and it's not just social media, although I'd say, again, Russia is probably focused more on social media. China is focused more on 
social media is a piece of the broader sort of information environment, right? So Tarina's approach here is broader, but they're both looking at how we use information strategically as a tool to advance geopolitical goals. And I think to respond to that, we need to think more. We basically haven't done this at all, right? The U.S., rather than thinking about how we use information strategically to advance geopolitical goals, our approach has been, let's say, fear capitalism, let Google and Facebook worry about that, right? And I think that's a mistake, and I think it puts it as a, as a real disadvantage in this geopolitical competition. So we need to think about it not in military terms per se, but definitely in strategic terms and in geopolitical terms. And so I acknowledge that you use the term warfare and that often leads to solutions where we have a sort of a trade-off between individual liberty and national security and we sort of suppress individual liberty for the sake of protecting national security. I don't want to see us go that direction. I don't think we should go that direction. But I do think we need to think about these issues in sort of strategic and geopolitical terms. And that's partly why I chose to use the term information warfare. Right. And one could see that there's something of an analogy here between, as you say, this information warfare space and this turning of clouds on its head where information is warfare by other means to cyber, right? And so countries right, have right. started to use cyber in strategic and in ways that are perceived as a threat to national security and as a way to, to affect the national security of other states. And in that space, of course, people have famously with the Talon Manual and, and all sorts of other initiatives begun to think about cyber operations through the lens of the laws of armed conflict, even use right. ad bellum, and so do you see uh, sort of analogously that we should be thinking about information warfare in those terms and bringing to bear some of the legal regimes that govern other forms of strategic action to govern this? Uh, and this sort of leads us into your normative uh, policy proposal, which is really rather quite different from the ways that people have approached the cyber problem. So maybe you can address that. So I think I think it's a mistake to look for sort of universal norms in this area. And the reason I think it's a mistake to look for universal norms is that this really is about a competition between democracies and autocracies. And we're not going to agree on universal norms. We have we have fundamentally different sort of ideological perspectives here. And so we can agree on norms among democratic states. And I'm all in favor of sort of international agreements among a group of democratic states to agree on a set of, and not just norms, but sort of policies and procedures that are designed to protect democracies from this threat of information warfare. Now, I think in the cyber realm, right, there are possibilities there for agreement on universal norms. For example, I, I think we ought to be able to work out agreement that you don't use cyber to shut down communications between military commanders and troops in the field, that that, that ends up harming everybody, right? So that's sort of one, one kind of example. There's things in the cyber realm where we could work out an agreement 
in areas that don't have this sort of ideological valence, right? But information warfare is particularly a tool used by autocracies to undermine democracy and to sort of spread authoritarian governance models. And there, I just don't think there's really opportunities for agreement between democratic states or autocratic states. So we have to think about how we frame agreements within the group of liberal democracies to advance our common goals and common interests. All right. So before I, I start lobbying all sorts of objections to the general idea, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit more about the detail of the proposal for this coalition of democracies and how they would regulate social media. So the basic idea is that we would have an agreement among a group of probably around 35 to 40 states that qualify at, as liberal democracies, right? And we can argue about exactly who's in who's out, but I would have membership criteria that you have to meet certain benchmarks in order to be included in this group, right? And then within that group, they would agree on a set of let's call it guidelines or principles for regulating social media that would then be implemented domestically in all of the states, right? So all the states that are members of the alliance would have a common approach to regulating social media. And three key things that sort of define that well called transnational regulatory system, right? One is banning Chinese and Russian state agents from social media platforms. And I think in order to make the ban effective, you need cooperation and collaboration among this group of liberal democracies. If the U.S. does it alone, it's not going to be nearly as effective as if we do it in collaboration with a group of other liberal democracies. The second thing is a, and this is a proposal that I've gotten a lot of pushback on, but <laughs> it, it is a registration system in which essentially Everybody who wants to maintain a public account on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or sort of name your platform has to register. And we would have a system of government verification so that if I created an account on Facebook and I register as David Sloss, and they say I'm a U.S. national, the U.S. government would confirm, yeah, in fact, there is a U.S. national named David Sloss whose identifying information matches the identifying information in the, in the registration and the application, right? And the purpose of that is so we can sort of catch fake accounts before they're created, right? One of the biggest problems in the 2016 election was Russians were operating all sorts of fake accounts in which they pretended to be U.S. nationals and used those accounts in which they were appearing under the guise of U.S. nationals. They used that to great effect to sort of influence the 2016 election. So I want to make it virtually impossible for Russian Chinese agents to set up accounts in which they adopt the identity of a U.S. national or a British national or a Canadian national or take your pick, right? Just to be clear, before you go on to the third one, just so... We understand. Does this mean that all Chinese and Russian nationals are barred from Twitter? Or is it when you say Russian or Chinese agents of the state, how do we differentiate between agents of the state and those who are just studying in the United States or for that matter, at home and wanting to use Facebook? Well, so I think this is a problem, right? If somebody's setting up a camera and registering as a Chinese national, how we determine that this Chinese national is a state agent or not, 
right? I include in the proposal some presumptions that help deal with this. If the Chinese national claims to be residing in the United States, they would presumptively not be a state agent, but the U.S. government would have to sort of check that. If they claim to be residing in Canada, they would presumably not be a Chinese agent, but the Canadian government would have to check that. But if they claim to be residing in China, they would presumably be a state agent and and they would basically have the burden of proving that they're not, right? Uh, and there would be the group that would have to evaluate these. Now, you don't get a whole lot of Chinese nationals living in China who are setting up accounts on Facebook or Twitter because Facebook and Twitter are banned in China. So that's not a problem. And, and we're getting close to the point where Facebook and Twitter are going to be banned in Russia too, although that's a very recent development. So granted, there are operational difficulties here in figuring out who is a state agent and who is not. But the goal here is not to ban all Chinese and Russian nationals from Twitter and Facebook, right? The goal is to ban Chinese and Russian state agents. And while it's an operational challenge to figure out who's a state agent, it's not an insurmountable challenge. So the three key elements are really the ban on Chinese and Russian state agents, the registration system, and then the third piece is a disclaimer regime. And the disclaimer regime basically applies to anybody who's got an account on uh, a social media platform who is a citizen or national of a country that is not a member of this alliance of democracies but also not Chinese or Russian, right? So take Venezuela, right? A Venezuelan citizen, Venezuela presumably is not going to be a member of this alliance of democracies. Uh, a Venezuelan citizen can basically register for an account on Facebook, do whatever they want on Facebook, has sort of free speech on Facebook, subject to uh, one thing, which is if they want to comment on elections in uh, a state that is a member of the alliance. So let's say Canada is a member of the alliance and some Venezuelan national has a, opinions about some upcoming Canadian election. They can post what they want on Facebook about that Canadian election, but it's going to be subject to a disclaimer. And that disclaimer is going to essentially provide a warning to users that the person who's posting this comment is a citizen or national of a non-democratic state, something like that. So the basic idea here is we have this alliance of democratic states who are adopting these sort of similar parallel sets of domestic regulations based on this internationally agreed set of guidelines or principles, right? And they're all doing the ban, the registration system, and the disclaimer system. Okay. And, and so let's circle back to the claim that you made that information warfare isn't that conducive or amenable to international norms. And I want to push back on that to some extent. There's been a development of scholarship in the wake of the 2016 election, looking at the extent to which election interference in particular, so maybe a subset of information warfare, but election interference violates already existing principles of international law, that it's a, on the one hand, potentially unlawful intervention, that it's somehow coercive interference within the domain reserve of, of the country whose election is being interfered with. It, it's potentially an interference with the right of self-determination. So there are a number of different theoretical approaches have been developed, but at least 
that approach sort of looks at this as an international law problem that is to be solved by international law for everyone in the international community and not something that is just hived off and some regulatory scheme created for the coalition of democracies and leaves everybody else out and creates sort of a, a sense of division within the international community. So how do you respond to that? So there's a lot there to unpack. First of all, I sort of object to the characterization that these other ideas are sort of truly international when mine is not, right? <laughs> international. So, so we got to distinguish between sort of customary international law and treaties, right? Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is proposals for interpretations of customary international law that basically who's going to support these interpretations of customary international law and who's not? I mean, in reality, democratic states will endorse these interpretations of customary international law. Authoritarian states generally won't uh, endorse these interpretations of customary international law. And the claim that these, like, there's some universal norm prohibiting election interference. I, I just, I mean, if you believe that customary international law is rooted in state practice, I don't think that claim is defensible. Now, if you have a theory of custom international law that says state practice doesn't matter, sure, <laughs> you could propose all kinds of rules of custom international law that are divorced from state practice, but I actually believe that custom international law is rooted in state practice. And I don't think there's much evidence to support the idea that election interference violates a norm of customary international law that's rooted in state practice. Now, there, at a high level of abstraction, we have these principles of non-intervention. If, if you make the principle abstract enough, right, you can make it universal. But a really abstract principle doesn't seem to me to be very useful. Right? Okay, let me just interrupt for a second. And, and I, sure. so I think that's right. I mean, I would agree with you that and it's another point that we'll come to is that the United States, of course, has engaged in, in election interference for a very long time. And so if we're looking at state practice, you would have to agree that, that there is no customary international law principle that prohibits election interference. But I think that the point that some of these scholars have made in the literature that's sort of come out in the post-2016 election period is the idea that this should be a foundation or, or a starting point for trying to develop a more robust regime that prevents this, right? That, that, that presumably, potentially, with an eye to actually getting a, a treaty in place. Much like there have been proposals to, and again, we could debate at, at length whether such proposals are remotely viable, but there have been proposals to develop treaties to govern cyber operations. And the point I guess I'm getting at is that these are looking for sort of international law. And by international law, I mean sort of universal approaches as opposed to regional or in this case, ideological in, in, in the sense that you just have a coalition of democracies agreeing. And, and to your point, it is an international agreement. It would presumably be something of a treaty that would form this a regulatory scheme. And so it is a matter of international law in that sense, but it would be... Uh, divisive as well in the sense that it would be one group of countries shutting out the rest of the world from or regulating their access to social media. So uh, I just want to issue with one thing you said, because in part of what you said, you equated sort of international law with universal. And I think that this is the sort of underlying issue, right? We, in a period beginning circa 1990, right? 
we got used to the idea that, hey, we live in a world in which the United States is a hegemon and we can essentially dictate rules for the whole world. We can come up with universal rules that we can sort of, you know, basically create for the entire world. And I think that attempt has largely been a failure, right? What we're finding out is that, particularly if you're looking for sort of treaty-based, right, if you want international agreements that actually help solve problems, trying to do that on a global basis, I think is not really the best way to go in this current sort of historical moment. Now, look, having said that, there's something is a cry out for universal solutions, right? We need a universal solution for climate change. We need a universal solution for fighting pandemics, right? These are areas where I don't care about ideological differences between democracies and autocracies, right? These are genuinely global problems that require global solutions. So let me be specific about, because we've sort of danced around this, what is sort of information warfare, right? Information warfare is, under my definition, using social media to influence domestic political processes in foreign countries, right? We, and particularly sort of not necessarily limited to electoral processes, but let's focus on electoral processes, right? There is a large chunk of the world where they don't have free and fair elections. And so we can't use social media to sort of influence electoral processes in Russia or China or North Korea or Iran, in part because they don't have open information environments, and in part because they don't conduct free and fair elections. So where the use of social media that influence domestic political or electoral processes matters, is when foreign countries are intervening in democratic states because those democratic states have open information environments and they have generally free and fair elections. And so this is an asymmetric problem, right? Where authoritarian states can actually use social media to influence elections in democratic states. Democratic states can't really use social media to influence elections in authoritarian states. And so, Looking for a sort of a universal solution seems to me is sort of failing to recognize the asymmetry of what's going on in this space. Okay. That's a fairly persuasive response. But <laughs> I think readers are also going to react to the double standard that I referred to earlier, right? The United States in particular, but not exclusively the United States among your coalition of democracies, have engaged in maybe not information warfare as you've defined it because it didn't involve social media, but have engaged in election interference. They have engaged in information operations, active measures, and within democracies, right? If you think of the CIA's operation in trying to influence elections in Guatemala, their actions in Chile, and, and not just trying to influence elections, but of course, with you know the overthrow of the Mossadegh regime in Iran in, in 53, you have total interference in democratically elected countries. And so you can imagine people in the Global South, much as they are responding to the current sort of outrage over Russian aggression in Ukraine, saying, wait a minute, you guys are all getting outraged now because the shoe is on the other foot. But when it suited you, you were entirely happy to interfere with other democracies and try to influence their outcome. 
even your allies, right? I mean, the CIA happily carted around garbage bags full of, of millions of yen to influence Japanese elections back in the day. So isn't there something of a double standard here that, that needs to be at least acknowledged and, and explained and discussed? Well, look, I'm certainly not going to defend the U.S. record of intervention in, you know, a whole wide variety of countries over a period of like several decades, right? So, yes, I mean, I, I think the allegation of a sort of a double standard is, is fair. I think we got to look at what are we doing going forward, right? So I, I would not want to see sort of shame and embarrassment over U.S. misdeeds in the past stand in the way of trying to deal with, with what I think is a really uh, serious problem right now, right? And I come back to the data about democratic decline, which I think we really have an interest in sort of trying to reverse. And, and the other thing I will say is the technology has changed in a way. And so the nature of that sort of interference is different, right? Was the United States trying to, or not tried to, did intervene in, you know, Iran in 1953, right? We were in a totally different kind of information environment, right? And so part of what I'm responding to here is it's sort of a change in the information environment because the change in technology has made it in some ways a whole lot simpler for countries to intervene in democratic political processes in existing democracies. Sure. And I'm not suggesting that the double standard should cause, you know, as you say, us to shy away from grappling with these problems out of shame. But it does, I think, again, support the idea that surely there should be more, you're going to balk at this term, but universal solutions in the sense that, look, if we're going to look at international solutions to election interference, and not just election interference, but interfering with public discourse in another country, trying to destabilize it, right, then surely that should apply to democracies too, right? In the American attempt to destabilize regimes in Venezuela should be subject to the same kinds of limitations as what we're worried about here in terms of Russia and China destabling our public discourse. And I think that to your point about the technical development that makes this easier, it also, what it really does is make it cheaper, right? So in 1953, the CIA was able to go and rent a mob and, and galvanize mobs to destabilize the regime and create a, an environment that allowed for a coup. That took a lot of money back in the day, right? The Russians were able to do that on Facebook with very little money during the 2016, well, the run up to the 2016 election. They spent a lot of money. They spent a lot of money. But it's, I mean, to your point though, there's this asymmetry now, the technology development makes it much easier for right. state agents to engage in this activity. But that shouldn't detract from the fact that we continue to do some of these things ourselves. And maybe we should be looking at solutions that, that tie our own hands and not just in a when you talk about the de decay and decline of democracy, one of the things, one of the things, and it's only one factor, but it's not an insignificant factor in the decline of democracy, is this suspicion of democratic governments, right? And a loss of the legitimacy of, of democratic governments. And in part, that can be, and only in part, but it, again, a strand of that is democratic governments get engaged in nefarious and hypocritical conduct. And that helps to, that's part of the story of our decline. 
I'm not sure if I agree with that last point, but let me set that aside for a second. I mean, so if you think more broadly about sort of foreign intervention in democratic discourse, right? Not elections per se, right? I would still say that, look, if we have people from, you know, France or Germany or Australia or Japan who want to sort of jump in and intervene in democratic discourse in the United States, I have no problem with that. That's fine, right? I don't think that we should have this sort of general suspicion of force, right? But I think that people from those countries who are basically using YouTube or Facebook or TikTok, pick your platform, right, to sort of participate in discourse related to sort of democracy in the United States, that doesn't strike me as a particular problem, right? Whereas when Iran and North Korea or China or Russia is doing it, I think it really is a problem. So you say, well, what about putting limits on democracies, right? Again, I think there's there's nothing nefarious about U.S. people sort of, you know, getting onto Twitter and commenting on elections in France or Germany or Sweden or whatever. I don't see that as a problem, right? Now, there are obviously other kinds of things that we might do to intervene in elections that would be a problem. Most of that, I think, is not like happening on social media. You look at the kinds of things where, you know, so, I mean, you mentioned Venezuela. I mean, our intervention recently in Venezuela, I think, is was probably a positive thing, right? We were trying to support Juan Guaido, who actually had won the election. And we were trying to sort of prevent the subversion of that electoral process by Maduro and his supporters in Venezuela, right? So there's an example where we were intervening in a foreign country to sort of influence electoral outcomes, but I think we we're intervening on the, on the side of democracy there. Obviously, that's not always the case, but I, I think you're hard-pressed to come up with examples where the U.S. government or other democratic governments are sort of using social media in a way that is undermining democracy, right? I don't, I'm not seeing those examples, whereas I'm seeing lots of examples of China and Russia using social media either to undermine democracy, or let, and let me just say a couple more words about sort of China's modus operandi here, right? Because we haven't talked much about China. But what China is doing as part of its Belt and Road initiative is putting in information and communications infrastructure in countries throughout the global South. And they are sort of building that information and communications infrastructure. And this includes social media, but it also includes more traditional forms of media and sort of information communications technologies that are essentially designed from an engineering standpoint to support the development of a surveillance state. And actually, China is much more active in sort of building information and communications infrastructure in the global south than the United States is. And so what we're seeing is they're using technology to, in ways that basically make it really easy for dictators to sort of set up a surveillance state that then strengthens their control over the country, right? And I talk about that some in the book, what's sort of beyond the scope of the book is thinking about policy responses to that. But I think policy responses to that are needed, and I think they're somewhat different than 
what I'm proposing in the book, but, but, you know, I worry a lot about China essentially using information and communications technology to spread and surveillance state models throughout the global South. Yeah. So that, that raises another question. It's a bit of a sideline from the, the broader international law issues that we're talking about, but just to digress for a moment. And one of the thoughts I had when reading the book was that you were sort of siloing this problem, right? It gets back to the definition of information right. warfare and, and just looking at the use of social media. But the flip side of that is if in looking at social media, the, the problem with social media is not limited to its exploitation by Russian and Chinese agents, right? If you read in the sort of privacy literature, like a book I read recently, Privacy is Power. I forget the author's name off the top of my head, but the first few chapters, which delve into the manner in which social media are selling and exploiting the data of users is just terrifying. And so on one level, you might think that, look, dealing with and regulating social media is a much bigger problem than simply worrying about its exploitation by Chinese and Russian agents, right? That, that, that social media in and of themselves pose a risk to democracy and to dem democratic values that go far beyond merely worrying about exploitation by foreign agents. And so is there a risk that you know, you're proposing a fairly elaborate regulatory scheme that is the, the subject of an international agreement among a coalition of democracies that misses part of the bigger problem with social media? I'm glad you raised that question because what I have to say a little bit about the timing of this book that I actually submitted the complete or a complete manuscript to the publisher in November of 2020, right around the time of the election, the U.S. election in 2020. And then the, this is being published with Stanford University Press. What they do is they send it out to external reviewers to get comments and then give me an opportunity to make revisions. And so they send it out to external reviewers and then January 6th happened, right? And so nice. a lot of the comments I got back from, from external reviewers was, what about January 6th? What about January 6th, right? This is clearly not me. Chinese or Russian operation, this is a domestic operation that is in some ways a sort of a scarier scenario in terms of protecting democracy than what happened in 2016, right? And so I ended up then adding a preface to the book to sort of address the question, well, what about January 6th? Right. And my basic answer is that I actually do think social media poses even just, a, you know, domestic uses of social media pose a significant threat to democracy. I think in that context, it's really hard to separate out social media from the broader media environment, right? What, if you look at what led to January 6th, one of the, one of the best books I read in doing the research for this book was a book called Network Propaganda by a group of scholars at Harvard. And Network Propaganda looks empirically at how disinformation spreads within the media ecosystem. And what they show very persuasively is that you get an interaction between sort of television, radio, social media, these days sort of blogs and podcasts, creating a feedback loop among themselves, right? And so you, if you look at one node of that feedback loop and social media is just one node, right? And you attack that one node, you're not really sort of getting at the bigger problem of how disinformation spreads, right? So if I was looking at sort of 
purely domestic things, right? I would take a very different approach for two reasons. One is that when we think about how do we regulate that domestically, the First Amendment poses a really significant challenge there, right? The First Amendment poses somewhat of a challenge in how do we regulate Chinese and Russians on social media, but it's very clear that the Chinese and Russian agents themselves don't enjoy First Amendment protections, at least insofar as they're operating from China and Russia, right? Now, that doesn't mean the First Amendment is irrelevant, but the First Amendment, when you think about potential regulatory solutions, the First Amendment plays out very differently if you're just going after China and Russia than if you're going after domestic sources of disinformation, right? So I think you need different kinds of regulatory responses, right? The key thing is that from a standpoint of how do we frame regulatory responses, the domestic stuff is really important, but it requires different kinds of solutions. And the First Amendment is a big uh, part of that. Right. So I guess we're getting back to the international realm and, and sort of the impact of this from a perhaps an international law perspective. One could imagine that once you have, if you were successful and got this regulatory regime adopted and in place, that at some point people would be saying, well, hang on, the Iranians are now causing just as much problems or, or are a threat in the social media space too. And, and there's empirical evidence and you have some of it in the book that countries like Iran uh, are active in this space and it's not simply China and Russia. So one could imagine this regulatory regime expanding and taking up more and more countries having their agents effectively banned from social media. And what, what would be the ramifications of that? Yes, the concern out there among people who sort of, you know, sort of internet apostles, right, who have always been big fans of the global internet. And they're worried about, and I'm sure for this term, the splinternet, right, where the internet sort of gets divided up, geographically segmented. And what I would say is that's already happened, right? I mean, look, China basically built a, built a great firewall a long time ago, shut out outside forces. So China has sort of already walled itself off from the global internet. And Russia is in the process of doing that right now. And both China and Russia have sort of exported their models to other countries. So there's a section in the book that talks about the states of the former Soviet Union. Most of the states of the former Soviet Union are now sort of developing a model for internet regulation that's based on the Russian model, which again, the sort of uh, the fundamental goal is we're using it for surveillance and control, right? And China is exporting this surveillance and control model to other countries. So if, and look, as you pointed out, this is a problem in the United States too, except the surveillance and control is being conducted by, you know, Google and Facebook rather than the U.S. government, right? But if we want a model, if we want an internet model that fundamentally free from government surveillance and control, that's not going to happen on a global basis, right? So the Chinese and Russians aren't going to sign up for that. And Saudi Arabia is not going to sign up for that. And the United Arab Emirates is not going to sign up for that. And a whole bunch of other countries are not going to sign up for that. So if we think that the internet should be the space for free democratic discourse, which is generally like free from government control, the only realistic way to do that is to do that among a group of liberal democracies who are committed to 
principles of limited government, right? At this point, if we're lucky, we've got about a third of the countries in the world that are really committed to those principles of limited government. So if we can set up an internet that works for those, call it 60 countries, whatever it is, where we really do have an internet that is free from government surveillance and control, that's probably the best that we can hope to accomplish. But if we think we're going to spread that to China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and a bunch of other countries and Iran, we're just kidding ourselves. It's not going to happen. All right. Well, that's probably a good note to end on. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask for three readings that you think relate to this that may not be on people's radar that you would recommend that we all read. So I actually came up with four, but one of them I mentioned before, which is this book, Network Propaganda, which I highly recommend. Another piece I highly recommend is actually an article in Foreign Affairs by a woman named Laura Rosenberger. This was published in the May-June issue of Foreign Affairs in 2020. It's called Making Cyberspace Safe for Democracy, the New Landscape of Information Competition. Laura Rosenberger is now in the uh, Biden White House uh, working on this stuff, but that one I highly recommend. Then the other two things are annual reports put out by different institutes that I think are quite helpful. So there's a group at Oxford University, the Oxford Internet Institute, which is just for the last, I think, three years, been putting out a annual report called the Global Disinformation Order. And it's the subtitles, an inventory of organized social media manipulation. But if you're interested in social media and information disorder, they do a really good job as an annual report. And then the other thing I'll mention is the, the Varieties of Democracy Institute, which is based in Sweden, VDEM for short, puts out a sort of an annual report on the state of democracy in the world. And they have been doing that for a while, and they've been tracking the decline of democracy and the rise of autocracy. They'd also have a huge database that's publicly available to back that up. And that database is a very good resource for scholars interested in uh, what's happening with sort of democracy and autocracy. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, a lot of food for thought. Listen, David, thank you so much for spending time with us today and talking about your wonderful book. I was also going to add that I'm very excited to announce that there is going to be an audiobook version of this book. So the hardback I have now seen, it's in my hands, but the audiobook is not yet out and should be out in the next couple of months. And are you the reader? I know. We, we hired a professional who was the narrator for the book. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that too. And I look forward to seeing you at the American Society of International Law in a, in a few weeks. Great. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for hosting me. And uh, it's been, I thought, a very good conversation. And I really appreciate your hosting me on the podcast. And I have to say that I'm really impressed with the sort of group of people you've attracted to this podcast. So I think you've done a great job. And, like, and I feel honored to be included in the one with this uh, very distinguished group. Thank you so much, David. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. Also, there's now a PayPal button on the website for those who might like to donate a small amount to help with the cost of editing, which I will say, do start to add up. 
For the price of an espresso or a latte, you can help keep us going. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter at at Podcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next episode, stay safe.